Hey there, all you true crime fans. I'm your host, Amanda Russell, and this is Colorado Crime. If you're new here, I cover cases from coast to coast with a special emphasis on cases that happen right here in colorful, crime-filled Colorado. If you're returning, thanks for being here. Happy New Year, guys! Or halfway through January, which is just crazy to me. But I have really big goals for 2023, and I really want to grow our little community. If there is a certain case that you guys want me to cover, don't hesitate to reach out on social media or email, and I will absolutely look into it. I want to definitely showcase cases that you guys are interested in. If you enjoy listening weekly, please subscribe and leave me a review on Apple Podcast. And now for my big surprise. I would like to introduce you to my new co-host, Corey Dacus. Corey and I have known each other since 2011 when I started working at the jail. We worked in booking together and she's been one of my best friends ever since. She's joining us this week as a guest, but will join us full time after she gets settled in her new home in Illinois because she's abandoning me. I'm going to hand it over to Corey so she can introduce herself to you guys. Hey, all you crime fans. I'm excited to be here. Like Amanda said, my name is Corey. I currently live in Loveland, and that is only until the 28th of this month. I'm married to my wonderful wife, Candace, and we raised our cousin, Brenda. Um, she's 24 now and living out on her own. Shout out to Brenda. We're moving to Illinois, like I said, the 28th. So once I get all settled in and all that, I'll be on here more full time sharing the broadcasts from states away. Corey, I am super excited for you to be joining our little community. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. This week, we are covering a case that occurred right before Christmas in 1984. It was December 20th, 1984, and our victim seemingly vanished. She was just 12 years old at the time of her disappearance. Her case quickly went cold, even though officers were quick to respond and search for her. Her body was discovered not far from where she disappeared, almost 35 years later. This is the disappearance and inevitable murder of Janelle Matthews. Janelle was just a typical 12-year-old girl who was looking forward to spending Christmas with her family, a family that she had been adopted into when she was just an infant. Janelle's biological mother was just 13 when she gave birth to Janelle on February 9, 1972 in California. Janelle was quickly adopted by Jim and Gloria Matthews when she was just a few weeks old. The Matthews family moved to Greeley, Colorado in 1978, where her father was an elementary school principal, her mother worked at a restaurant, and her sister Jennifer was in high school. I do find it interesting that Janelle's mom was 13 when she had her and Janelle was 12 when she disappeared. I find that eerily creepy and a little bit like I don't know how to describe the, the weirdness that happened with all of that, you know. Oh, I totally agree. It is weird. And how sad. Janelle has been described as spunky, vibrant, and bold. She attended church regularly at Sunnyview Church of the Nazarene and was a member of her middle school choir. On the night of her disappearance, she performed in a choir concert at the Intra West Bank of Denver. Her father was at her sister's basketball game and her mother was visiting Janelle's sick grandpa, so Janelle got a ride home from a friend and her father that evening. Janelle arrived home around 8.15 p.m., Russell Ross, the friend's dad who dropped Janelle off that evening, noted that the garage door to the detached garage was partially open but obviously didn't think anything of it. Fifteen minutes after arriving home, a phone call came through for her dad and she took a message. It was a teacher from Jim's school calling to inform him that he was sick and would not be able to teach class the following day. 
The two hung up, and that was the last time anyone heard from Janelle. Janelle had removed her shoes and placed them in front of a space heater and then put on her mom's slippers and began to watch TV until her family arrived home for the evening. I'm sure she was excited to hear about her sister's game and tell them about her concert. This conversation would never take place, though. Jim arrived home around 9.30 p.m. and noticed that the garage door was open. He went inside, but to his surprise, Janelle wasn't there. He wrapped a present for a co-worker so it would be ready in the morning, and it struck him how odd it was that he hadn't heard from Janelle. Jim knew she should have been dropped off by this time. He began to search the home for her, discovering the lights and TV on and her shoes and shawl by the heater. Jim called out for Janelle several times but got no response. He saw the note by the phone with the message Janelle had taken. Jennifer arrived home about 30 minutes after Jim. Immediately, Jim asked her if he knew where Janelle was. Having just walked through the door, she told him she did not know but that if Janelle had gone to a friend's home, she would have left a note as she always did. The two searched for a note but came up empty-handed. Not knowing what to do, Jim called his best friend and pastor, James Christie. Jim told him that he came home and Janelle wasn't there and asked what he should do. James told Jim to call the police. Jim immediately hung up the phone and dialed 911. By 10.15, the first officers arrived on scene. They searched the area but found no signs of a struggle. What they did find was footprints in the snow that someone had apparently raked over in order to literally cover their tracks. The rake that was used actually came from the Matthews garage, and investigators didn't release that the footprints were covered in order to preserve guilt knowledge when they found a suspect. Jim informed the police that his daughter wasn't wearing any shoes as they were still inside. Corey, you were actually living in Greeley when this happened, right? What was the community like? Was everyone pretty scared to send their kiddos back to school or to leave them home alone? I was. I was about seven years old at the time, and she actually went to the middle school that was maybe two blocks away from my grandma and grandpa lived. My mom freaked out. Greeley was a pretty quiet town from what I remember, and nothing really interesting had happened until then. But then again, I was seven, so I don't really... My definition of interesting and other people's definition of interesting might be different. We pretty much changed everything after that. My mom was teaching us how to get away with someone if they tried to take you. We had like little kitchen meetings where we all sat on the floor and my mom was like, you need to walk on the opposite side of the street. If somebody suspicious is following you, don't get in their car. It was a whole, it was a whole thing. And you know, in 1984, we didn't have cell phones or tracking apps or airdrop things or any of that. Once your kid was gone, they were gone. They either turned up dead or, you know dead. My dad also worked for the sheriff's office at the time and they helped the Greeley Police Department look for her. There was just so much speculation on what had happened to her. So your dad worked for Weld County? Mm -hmm. You should get one of those Nepo baby shirts that Haley Bieber wore. I would like a Nepo baby shirt. (laughs) I mean my dad did work there for 30 years so and I worked there for like 10 and then plus 3 so 13 years because I went back (laughs) went back to jail you couldn't stay out i just loved it so much Uh, there should be rehab for people like us (laughs) i went back too so the next day the fbi joined the search for the little girl Greeley police along with the fbi agents went door to door asking anyone if they had seen janelle other officers and agents combed the area around her home checking fields and ditches as they went still nothing while talking to friends and teachers 
Police discovered that Janelle had actually made plans with several friends over the break, so it was unlikely that she left on her own accord. In fact, she had a sleepover plan for that very day, and she also had a presentation at church that she was really excited for about Christmas. Janelle had been sick two days before she went missing, and her parents wanted her to stay home, but she insisted that she go to school to give her friends the presents she made. They agreed because she was so excited. She had wanted to attend her sister's basketball game after her choir concert, but her parents thought it would be better for her to go home and rest in order to ensure that she was feeling well enough during her much-anticipated break. When Janelle went missing, she was wearing a dark gray skirt, a red shirt, gray sweater, and her light blue ski jacket. Everything she wore to her choir concert, minus her shoes. As to be expected, the first person on the police radar was Janelle's dad, Jim. He remained their prime suspect for six months. He was calm and cooperative. All he wanted was his daughter's safe return. He agreed to a polygraph with the FBI. He agreed to a polygraph with the Greeley Police Department. It was about then that Jim ran out of patience. He had cooperated with investigators for six months, and yet they were no closer to finding his daughter than when he started. Janelle's biological mother was even surveilled for some time, unbeknownst to her. After six weeks, she was cleared, but never informed that she was being watched or that her biological daughter was missing. Searches were conducted by the public. Some 4,000 square miles were searched. A reward of $5,000 was offered. That would have been a little more than $14,000 today. It was actually the largest reward offered in Greeley history at the time. But no search and no amount of money led to any information. Back in the 1980s, police had started putting missing children's pictures on milk cartons, and Janelle was one of the first to be featured. President Ronald Reagan even mentioned Janelle in a speech when his administration opened up a national hotline for missing children. I remember milk carton babies. We got our milk delivered, but they still put them on those cartons too. Adam Walsh was on there, uh, Janelle Matthews, and some other missing children. I don't remember. I was seven. The Matthews family searched and searched for their daughter. They even went on a national media tour trying to garner any new information regarding Janelle's whereabouts. Gloria even kept all of Janelle's Christmas presents from that year in hopes that when she returned, the family would open them together. After a few years, the family would donate the presents, including a Cabbage Patch doll. Gloria waited in line for hours because she knew her daughter would love it. I'm totally going to date myself here, but do you remember that movie, Jingle All the Way, with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Our parents really experienced stuff like that, and especially with Cabbage Patch dolls. So there was this one that I really wanted, and it ate veggies or something, but my mom thought the dolls were creepy. And saw something on the news about how the doll actually, like, ate a little girl's hair. So I never got one. But I actually did buy one with you. I think I used my first paycheck from the jail. And her name was Phoebe. And I think I still have her. She's downstairs. I think Emerson played with her for a while. I also bought one at that time. I had, like, four or five Cabbage Patch dolls. But my mom did really wait in line for them. She, and she had four kids. So she had to buy four of them. And it was like a fight and people would like knock each other out. It was crazy, crazy times in the 80s. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad we didn't have to fight anybody. We went to Target. It was easy. I mean, we were obviously like way too old to be buying a Cabbage Patch doll, but it's fine. I didn't have one and I wanted one, okay? You're never too old for dolls. I still have a bunch of Build-A-Bears in my basement. I think I have one. We took the kids and I think one got like a dragon. Maybe they both got dragons. That would be weird. No, one got a dragon and one got Captain America. Captain America? Captain America. I have an owl and a monkey. 
1994, after Janelle went missing, her family had her declared legally dead. They searched for so long and so hard, they probably needed that little bit of closure and the ability to mourn her loss. Three years later, Gloria had received a letter in the mail from Janelle's biological mother. She explained that she used a professional to help her locate the family who had adopted her daughter all those years ago, and she wanted to meet her if she was interested. Gloria cried as she read the letter in the post office, knowing she would have to be the one to inform her that Janelle had been missing for 13 years and that meeting would never take place. Janelle's biological mother and the Matthews family would actually go on to develop a friendship and grieve the loss of their child together. In 2018, on the 34th anniversary of her disappearance, it was announced that the Greeley Police Department was going to take another look at the case. Janelle Matthews was entered into the International Center for Unidentified or Missing Persons database. Investigators were hoping to ignite some more talk about the case, hoping someone, somewhere, would come forward with information that would take this case from ice cold to salt. Call it what you want. Divine intervention, God, luck, whatever you believe in. But on July 23, 2019, just a few short months after the reopening of the case was announced, a pipeline company was digging in a rural part of Weld County, just about 15 miles from where Janelle was last seen, when they came across what they believed were human remains. The remains were found wearing the same gray skirt red shirt, gray sweater, and light blue ski jacket Janelle had gone missing in. After dental records were compared, it was confirmed to be the body of 12-year-old Janelle Matthews, and she had died from a single gunshot wound to the head. I find it interesting that they looked at all those places, but they didn't find like a burial ground or anything like that. So, I mean, I guess maybe they should have searched longer or, I mean, it would have been like a freshly dug grave. How would you have not noticed that? Like, Or did he keep her for a long time? That's all stuff that's so speculative. Yeah, because, I mean, if she was only found 15 miles away, they did all of those searches and stuff. And, I mean, they walked fields and everything. So you would think that they would have stumbled upon something. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, it was 84. But that's kind of one of the big things that is looked for now is if someone's missing, they're going to look for disturbed ground. Just about a month and a half later, it was announced that a person of interest in the case had been located. Someone who announced that he himself was this person of interest. Someone who had lived just three miles from Janelle. Someone who seemed to keep resurfacing in the case. Someone who kept interjecting themselves in the investigation. Someone who had moved away from Greeley five years after Janelle went missing. Enter Stephen Dana Pinky. Steve Pinky began inserting himself into the case as early as January 1985. He made several incriminating statements to police as well as to his ex-wife. These statements continued until his arrest in Idaho and throughout his two trials. Pinky was born in Ventura, California in 1951. After high school, he joined the U.S. Army but was released shortly after in 1976. He received an associate's degree from Ames Community College in Greeley, Colorado. Steve was a 33-year-old used car salesman when Janelle went missing. He was married and had a young son. His ex-wife, Angela Hicks, has been credited as the reason why Panky is behind bars. The couple was married for 23 years and would go on to have two children. Much of the marriage, Angela said she spent feeling sad and isolated. Panky banned Angela from driving, reading newspapers, watching TV, and even listening to music. He announced this by smashing a stereo just as she was listening to the cassette while doing chores. 
Okay. If you guys don't know what a cassette is, you're too young to be listening to this podcast. So cut us some slack here. Just Google it, okay? There were hours spent on car trips flipping the side of the cassette. So Google it. We're old. We also had to listen to the radio to record songs on it. So good times. He even made Angela cut ties with her father after he told her, if your dad shows up here, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to use every opportunity to piss on his grave. On December 21st, 1984, the day after Janelle went missing, Steve Pinky came home that afternoon and told his family that they would be visiting his family in California for Christmas, a trip that, as far as Angela knew, was unplanned. Angela asked what would be done with their two dogs while they were away, and Pinky told her, quote, don't worry about the dogs, they're gone, end quote, and she never saw them again. I just have to say I would divorce him on the spot. My dogs are my babies. I have two dogs. Corey, you have three. Could you imagine if Candace just like got rid of your dogs and you came home and they were gone? No, but I would understand. (laughs) Right now they're pretty terrible. (laughs) Dexter's my best friend. You can't do that to me. I would keep him. The other two gotta go. (laughs) Nah, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't get rid of him. That's a terrible thing to do. I mean, we just had our new assistant, Luna. She's a silver lab puppy. She was just in here trying to help us. Like, I would be so sad if somebody just, like, got rid of my pets. Anyway, the family packed up and left that next morning. Angela testified that the entire ride there was silent. But when the family was returning home, Pinky forced Angela to scan through the radio stations for any news about Janelle's disappearance. Even though they spent all of Christmas Day driving home, Pinky made sure to stop at a grocery store and have Angela go inside to purchase all the newspapers that featured Janelle's disappearance. And if that wasn't weird enough, he then demanded that Angela read all the stories to him right there in the parking lot. Do you want to hear a weird fact about the case? Lay it on me. So Russell Ross, the friend who brought Janelle home on the night that she went missing, he was actually Steve Pinky's boss at a 7-Up distribution center until he had to fire Pinky. And the Pinkies and the Rosses attended the same church that the Matthews would go on to attend, but Pinky was actually excommunicated for an incident that happened with another church member before the Matthews joined. Steve was quote-unquote dating a fellow member of the church, And she ended up accusing him of raping her. But she did go on to withdraw her claim. And then he sued her. But you have to remember that it was the 70s. And I'm sure she was scared of him. He seems like a really scary guy. And I'm sure she was scared of what the church was going to think. But after all of this, he was removed from the church as he should have been. On December 27th, 1984, Angela claimed that Pinky was in the backyard digging holes and burning a car when Angela's father came over. Steve Pinky would claim that during this visit, Angela's father told Pinky that he had to bury a body and he felt his father-in-law was referring to Janelle Matthews. He stopped speaking to him for that reason. In fact, he was so bothered by this statement, he reported it to the FBI. Of course, he was directed to do this by his attorney, which, what distribution center employee or used car salesman at the time, retains an attorney. This was the first time Steve Pinky inserted himself into the investigation. I mean, even now it's expensive to retain an attorney, but I mean, in the 80s, I can't imagine. That just, that seems like somebody who is asking for trouble. It actually seems more like a mafia thing. Let me get my attorney. Pinky was a paranoid person. He often has issues with people and the law. He once maced two teens after he caught them exploring a tunnel and they refused to show him their hands. Maybe that's why he has an attorney. I mean, could be. Also, macing teens. Is it all bad? I mean, fair enough. 
Then, when Panky began working for the 7-Up distribution, he tried to unionize and accused Russell Ross of cutting his deliveries to prevent this from happening. This would begin his longtime hatred of his boss, Russell Ross. And he was also accused of the rape we mentioned earlier. A few months after Janelle went missing, Panky attended a church service where the minister said Janelle would be found safe. Panky became visibly upset and yelled, False prophet! In fact, he was so disruptive that he had to be escorted out of the church. So he also attempted multiple times, actually, to run for office in Idaho, all of which were unsuccessful. But in 2019, after Panky became a person of interest, investigators reached out via phone and Panky immediately asked for immunity. Weeks later, a search warrant was issued and investigators searched the home for anything related to Janelle Matthews like letters, diaries, floppy disks, CDs, thumb drives, anything. When Steve Pankey did speak with investigators, he told them about how someone covered the footprints with a rake, a fact that was not publicly released, a fact that only someone who had been at the scene would know. On October 12, 2020, Stephen Dana Pankey was arrested for the murder and kidnapping of Janelle Matthews. Can you imagine searching the house? You have an investigator who's born in like 1991 and they're like, what the heck is this? A floppy disk? Where do you put that in? There are not even any floppy disk drives. Hey now, I was born in 1991. I know what a floppy disk is. If you don't know, you should probably Google that too. But it's like a little flat thingy that goes into your computer, used to go into your computer because you probably can't find one with a floppy disk drive in there. And then you could, like, save things like a CD or thumb drive or the cloud, but in hard form. It was a hard form cloud. During his trial, even Stephen Pankey's own attorney stated how odd it was that Steve was so obsessed with this case. Steve Pankey would face two trials. His first ended in a mistrial, as the jury could not agree. His ex-wife, Angela Hicks, testified against him both times. An alternate suspect was offered up by the defense, Norris Drake. Norris Drake had been at his mother's house the night that Janelle had gone missing. He left home around the time that Janelle was dropped off by the Ross family, and they returned around 3 or 4 a.m. He further claimed that since there was no sign of a struggle, it must have been someone Janelle knew, like a neighbor. Norris Drake's family did provide an alibi for him, and he was cleared as a suspect from there. I mean, the no signs of a struggle kind of is weird. Like, I mean, we just didn't go with random people. I'm sure he didn't just walk in and be like, hey. Get in the car. And she was like, oh, all right. I mean, even now we know not to get in a car with strangers. And if you don't, you do now. Don't get in a car with strangers. Unless they have a van and there's candy. Or puppies. But really, don't get in a car with anybody. I mean, like, it was big. Hitchhiking was so big in the 70s. But, like, you can go back and pull up so many cases of people who disappeared after they were hitchhiking. I mean, there was a serial killer who killed people from hitchhiking. So, mm. maybe we should cover that case. On November 4th, 2021, the jury reached a verdict, a verdict that surprised many. Stephen Pankey was found guilty of making false statements and sentenced to time served, but the jury was deadlocked on the murder and kidnapping charge. Back to the drawing board. The second trial was set for October 4th of 2022, and on October 31st, 2022, Stephen Dana Pankey, now 71 years old, was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. He will be 91 years old at his first parole hearing. What do you think, Corey? 
did he do it? I don't know. There, I don't follow the trial that closely. Um, I was actually working at the jail at the time that he was arrested again, so I kind of didn't keep up on it. I don't know what evidence they had that they found on those floppy disks. Do you think like they had to send it off to the FBI to have the FBI look at the floppy disks because nobody has floppy disk readers anymore? I would hope that the sheriff's office had floppy disk readers. I mean, we still have floppy disks for a long time. I feel like you're putting a lot of stock into good old Weld County. Hey now, we did work there. It's still cool. People are still cool. Jail's not cool, kids. Don't go there. The food's gross anyway, and it always smelled like feet and beef jerky and death down there. But the cookies were good. Mm. And the brownies. They're not bad. Oh, I love brownies. So I don't know. I mean, he did interject himself quite a bit. That's suspicious, but I don't know if he killed her. I mean, her body had been buried for 35 years. There's not a whole lot of evidence left after that. I'm surprised they could recognize who she was. I guess my thing is the motive is, you know, he really didn't have a motive. And while he might have been a sexual predator, the lady that he was accused of raping was at least an adult. So she wouldn't necessarily, like, fit his M.O. But And he was accused of that in the 1970s. How come he didn't do anything else until then? I mean, beating your wife is a crime, but she also never reported it. We're not saying he's a good guy or anything. I mean, he's a weird duck for sure. Definitely, like, interjected himself, which is really common with somebody who actually committed the crime. But I don't know if he actually did it. I think he might just be a weird fucking guy. Weirdos. Do you remember who booked him in? Were you there when he got brought in? Yeah, I worked there, but I don't remember who booked him in. He came from Idaho, so he was on a transport. I don't Ah, uh, so it was swings and it was busy and he just got thrown in there. I understand. Well, that is all we have for you guys this week. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you guys are as excited about our new co-host as I am. Like Corey said, she'll be joining us full time when she's settled in Illinois. Until then, she will be joining us when she can. I am really looking forward to 2023 and for you coming on full time. Our layout might change a little bit when Corey comes on, so bear with us while we figure it out. But we're trying to figure out how we're going to structure episodes and it'll be a little different because, you know, she'll be across the country abandoning me and I'll be here. Illinois is not that far, people. It's only 14 hour drive. Only? I'm the worst traveler. I'll be barfing the whole time. You could fly, but your arms might be tired. <laughs> Oh, so punny. This one's got jokes. I did want to let you guys know that we will be keeping you updated on the University of Idaho murders. Brian Koberger goes back to court in June, but if anything comes out before then, we will definitely let you know. If you guys haven't already, please subscribe so you can be notified every time we upload. And please go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps to push our podcast to more listeners. New episodes are released every Friday at 1030 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Please follow us on Instagram at Colorado Crime Pod for information on next week's episode as well as other true crime happenings. We hope that you have a beautiful day wherever you are. And as always, stay safe. Keep it real, people. Corey and Amanda, out. You're going to have to do like a Walter Cronkite thing like, I watched the world. Oh.